You're listening to Understanding Sin and Evil. Dr. Miriam Brand on the Bible, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Ancient World. Learn more at understandingsin.com. Hello, and welcome back to Understanding Sin and Evil, Episode 3, Death or Evil, Adam and Sin in the Second Temple Period. Today, we're going to look at how the last two biblical stories we reviewed, that is, the story of Adam and Eve and the story of Cain and Abel, are used or not used to explain sin in the Second Temple period. You've heard me before mention that the Adam and Eve story, which today many people think of as the biblical story that explains the origin of sin, Not only does it not really explain the origin of sin in its biblical context, but it's also not a particularly prominent way of explaining sin in the Second Temple period. However, what I'm going to do today is pick out certain places where we do see it. What's interesting is that while we see the story of Adam and Eve reflected in some very specific places regarding the origin of sin, we find it very rarely. In general, we will not find this story as an explanation of sin in Second Temple period literature. So for example, at Qumran in the scrolls, we do not see an explanation of the origin of sin coming from Adam and Eve. In general, in the books that are written during the Second Temple period by Jews in Judea and in the Diaspora, we do not see this story as an explanation of sin. However, it is floating around in the background, apparently. Now, for this podcast, you can just listen. You don't need to follow along in a source sheet. But because I'm bringing certain interesting sources that are not in the Bible, I have actually prepared a source sheet. You can go to my blog at understandingsin.com, go to the correct post, and download it. So we're going to begin with the book of Ben Sirah. A little bit about the book of Ben Sirah, because it's the first time we're mentioning it in this podcast series. The book of Ben Sirah is an example of wisdom literature, like Proverbs. The book of Ben Sirah is written by Ben Sirah, or as some people may know him, Jesus, the son of Sirach. Jesus is actually Yehoshua, which commonly was shortened to Yeshua, which in Greek would have been transcribed Jesus. Since the book survived in Greek, it is commonly called in the Apocrypha the book of Jesus, the son of Sirah. Ben Sirah was a scribe in Judea who wrote his book in Hebrew. He lived around 200 before the Common Era, 200 BCE, and uh, two generations later, his book was translated into Greek by his grandson. That Greek work was included in the Septuagint, in the more expansive, you could say, biblical collection of the Alexandrian Jewish community. And then that, the Septuagint, with all its books, was maintained by the early church and later the Catholic church. So we have the translated book of Ben Sirah in its entirety. We also have Hebrew manuscripts from the medieval period uh, found in the Cairo Gniza. Those are fragmentary. We don't have the entire book. However, what we do have in this case is the important verse where Ben Sirah seems to reflect an understanding 
of the Adam and Eve story and maybe shades of the Cain and Abel story. I'll read the verse in Hebrew first and then I'll continue with the English translation. From a woman is the beginning of sin, and because of her, we all die together, or all, we all die alike. In the Greek translation, it's pantes, all. So the word yachad can be translated as all, together, alike. But at any rate, here we have a reflection of this idea that from a woman is the beginning of sin. So first of all, this is not as clear a statement as it initially sounds because Ben Sira is speaking here about what the wicked woman does. Uh, ben Sira has whole sections where he discusses something. Here, this is the middle in the middle of discussing what a wicked woman or a wicked wife can do. So since he's talking about a wicked woman or a wicked wife, he says, from a woman is the beginning of sin. So does that simply mean that a wicked woman causes sin or is he reflecting something wider? As one of my professors and mentors, Mark Smith, has been wanting to say, this verse seems to reflect or echo the story. In other words, this uh, verse is supposed to remind us of a story that woman is beginning of sin, even though Ben Siri here is not making a philosophical statement about the beginning of sin. You can say, well, how do you know? He isn't, even if it's in the context of talking about a wicked wife. Well, I know that he isn't because when he philosophically discusses sin, and that's in chapters 15 where he talks about the evil inclination, and chapter 33 where he seems to talk about how everything has to have these opposites, evil and good, we know it. He's having a discussion of sin. He doesn't talk about the Adam and Eve story. And we will get to those discussions later on when we talk about the evil inclination. However, here, while he's discussing the wicked woman, he's kind of letting himself echo a story that people know. The beginning of sin is from a woman. What are the two possible sources of this story? Well, obviously, the first thing we think of is Adam and Eve. Eve gives the fruit to Adam. Adam eats the fruit. Therefore, it is Eve's fault. So that is the obvious connection. Another connection, if we'll remember, if you remember that parallel that we had between the curse of Eve, that her desire is to man and man will rule her, and the oracle to Cain, that sin's desire is to him and he will rule it, and that possible equation and that an early reader or listener would make between woman and sin. Ah, woman must equal sin. And so from the woman, from woman is the beginning of sin. Truthfully, probably it's a combination of those two stories and mainly the Adam and Eve story that's providing the context for Ben Sira to just kind of give this kind of throwaway comment when he's talking about the wicked woman or the wicked wife that from a woman is the beginning of sin and because of her, we all die. So that's probably the earliest reference to the story that we have in Second Temple literature. Again, 200 BCE, actually not that early, and it kind of stands alone. Now, I would like to mention that, of course, we don't have all the books from the Second Temple period. What we have of Qumran is fragmentary. However, we have a lot, and it really isn't reflecting this idea. When do we see the story of Adam and Eve being used to explain sin in a major way? We see it in two books written shortly after the destruction of the Second Temple. 
So what I would say uh, 80, 90, 100 CE, 100 of the common era. So we're talking about 300 years after Ben Sira wrote what he did in Judea. Fourth Ezra and second Baruch. Let's first take a look at fourth Ezra. The book of fourth Ezra was apparently written in Hebrew. Generally, it's considered to all have been written by one person. There were additions to the beginning and to the end, later Christian interpolations. When we talk about fourth Ezra, we are talking about the Jewish, the original Jewish book. So fourth Ezra actually starts in chapter three because chapters one and two were added in a Latin Christian interpolation. Those are usually called fifth Ezra. And it ends with chapter 14 because chapters 15 and 16 are called sixth Ezra. They're also a Latin Christian interpolation in the Vulgate. Again, written shortly after the destruction of the second temple, dealing with the second temple, it is put into the mouth of Ezra. Ezra, who, if you remember, was instrumental in the beginning of the second temple. And what Ezra is supposed to have witnessed, that is, according to the book of fourth Ezra, is the destruction of the first temple. So this book, fourth Ezra, which is responding to the destruction of the second temple, is responding to it by creating a fake book in the name of Ezra, who was responding to the destruction of the first temple. Now, anyone who knows a little bit about the chronology knows it's really strange that Ezra would be alive during the destruction of the first temple. This does not seem to bother the author, however. Now, a little bit about the history of the book of fourth Ezra. The book of fourth Ezra was written in Hebrew. It was then translated into Greek. We do not have that translation. From Greek, it was translated into several other languages. The main language for our purposes is Latin. It was in the Vulgate. So again, 4th Ezra is not in the Septuagint. It was not kept in the Septuagint, even though it had been translated into Greek. It found its way to, let's say, the Christian tradition through the Vulgate and the Latin translation of the Greek translation of the Hebrew translation. Because it has this peculiar history, it is called 4th Ezra. 4th Ezra refers to what is called 4th Esdras in the Vulgate and what is called 2nd Esdras in the collection of the Apocrypha following the Reformation, for example, in Bibles of the Church of England. However, 4th Ezra refers specifically to the original Jewish book without the Christian interpolations in the beginning and the end. So 4th Ezra actually begins with chapter 3, where 5th Ezra is chapters 1 to 2 of 4th Esdras of the Vulgate, and 6th Ezra is chapters 15 to 16 of 4th Esdras of the Vulgate, because those two pieces, the piece at the beginning and the piece at the end, are later Christian interpolations on what was originally a Jewish work. Now, regarding why 4th Ezra is called 4th Ezra, originally I recorded an explanation, but it is so complicated that if you are really interested, I will explain it on my blog. You can read it there. But let's just say 4th Esdras Vulgate, 2nd Esdras Collection of Apocrypha after the Reformation, 4th Ezra for us now. Returning to our book. Now, in the very beginning of the book, Ezra is essentially mourning and trying to come to grips with the destruction of the temple. And he turns to God. 
And he says, O sovereign Lord, did you not speak at the beginning when you did form the earth and that without help and did command the dust and it gave you Adam, a lifeless body? Yet he was the workmanship of your hands and you did breathe into him the breath of life and he was made alive in your presence. And you did lead him into the garden, which your right hand had planted before the earth appeared. And you did lay upon him one commandment, but he transgressed it. And immediately you did appoint death for him and for his descendants. From him there sprang nations and tribes, peoples and clans, without number. And every nation walked after its own will, and did ungodly things before you, and scorned you, and you did not hinder them. Now note, at this point, it doesn't seem like sin comes from Adam at all. It does seem like death comes from Adam, though. Uh, but again, in its time, you did bring the flood upon the earth and the inhabitants of the world and destroy them. And the same fate befell them. As death came upon Adam, so the flood upon them. In other words, if you sin, you die. Adam sinned, he brought death into the world. And again, this is a specific translation of what the expulsion, that the expulsion from Eden was what ended the possibilities of everlasting life for Adam and Eve. And that expulsion happened because of Adam's sin. Okay. And here, so here we have death following from sin. Yet you did not take away from them their evil heart so that your Torah might bring forth fruit, fruit in them. For the first Adam, burdened with an evil heart, transgressed and was overcome, as were also all who were descended from him. So in this case, we have an evil heart. The evil heart caused Adam's first sin. So it doesn't sound like Adam's sin actually caused an evil heart to be created. It sounds like Adam from the beginning had an evil heart, which caused him to turn his back on the one commandment that God gave him. But if we continue reading, it says, again, I'll repeat, for the first Adam burdened with an evil heart, transgressed and was overcome, as were also all who were descended from him. Thus, the disease became permanent. The Torah was in the people's heart, along with the evil root, but what was good departed and the evil remained. Okay, so somehow at some point, there's this permanent disease of the evil heart. When does it become permanent? Why does it become permanent? That is not exactly clear. The truth is that 4th Ezra is not completely, the book is not completely consistent in this view. So let's skip ahead. Let's skip ahead to, uh, to chapter 7. So first of all, just as an aside, in chapter 7, we do have this idea of kind of an evil inclination, the evil thought, which is like the evil heart that Adam had. And again, we're going to talk, we're going to talk about the evil inclination later in this podcast series. But talking about people who did righteously and therefore actually get something better in the afterlife than the, the wicked, uh, it's the first order, I'm reading from 792, the first order, because they have striven with great effort to overcome the evil thought which was formed with them, that it might not lead them astray from life into death. So here it seems like people were created with an evil thought. That's almost certainly a translation of evil inclination. Remember that this book is a translation of the Greek, which is a translation of the Hebrew. But then we have a lament. Oh, Adam, and I'm reading from chapter 7, 
verse 118. O Adam, what have you done? For though it was you who sinned, the misfortune was not yours alone, but ours also who are your descendants. For what good is it to us if an immortal age has been promised to us, but we have done deeds that bring death? Or that an everlasting hope has been predicted to us, but we are miserably shamed? Or that safe and healthful habitations have been reserved for us, but we have erred wickedly? And here there actually is this hint that what Adam did was not just bringing death, physical death to the world, but somehow Adam caused sinfulness in the rest of us. That what good is, uh, is it to us that we've been promised all these wonderful things if we do good, if we have this natural inclination to act wickedly, or if we do act wickedly, and Adam, it's all your fault. So here we see actually that certainly in the time when 4th Ezra is written, we have these two different ideas that the book of 4th Ezra kind of melds. He doesn't really distinguish between them. One is that Adam already had an evil inclination. That's why he sinned. But his sin brings death into the world. And also that Adam's sin brought sin into the world. So we have these two ideas that are that at least exist and for the protagonist in 4th Ezra, both of these ideas have real weight. And by the way, he argues there's an angel that comes to him and kind of argues and says, "Hey, look, you were given the Torah, you could have kept the commandments." And Ezra's argument is, "No, we had this evil heart that coexisted with the commandments and the commandments didn't get rid of it." And we just can't, we're not strong enough to fight against it. And so this really is, is not fair. Of course, at the end, Ezra sees the light through essentially a, a revelation of Jerusalem, of Zion. I'll leave that for a discussion of Fourth Ezra, the, the book, which perhaps I will eventually get to. Uh, I, I recommend it as a book. It's a fascinating book. Where else do we see this idea that Adam's sin caused people's sin? We see it in a book that's frequently read together with 4th Ezra because it's also a book that's responding to the destruction of the Second Temple. It's written around the same time. It's what's called an apocalypse because like 4th Ezra, and I didn't read that section with you, because like 4th Ezra, 2nd Baruch ends with a prediction of the apocalyptic age, which is to come. And like 4th Ezra, 2nd Baruch deals with the problem of theodicy. That is, the problem of justifying God, which means if God is benevolent and God is all-knowing and all-powerful, why do bad things happen to good people? That is the basic problem of theodicy. Or, alternatively, why does evil exist in the world? So there have been solutions to this through the ages. This is a major issue for both the books of 4th Ezra and 2nd Baruch. And the reason that it's such an issue for them, of course, is the destruction of the temple. They're both reacting to the destruction of the 2nd temple. So a word about 2nd Baruch, it, the number 2 here is a little easier to explain than the number 4 with 4th Ezra. 2nd Baruch is the second book that is attributed to Baruch, namely Jeremiah's scribe, Yirmiyahu's scribe. First Baruch was written during the Hasmonean period. Second Baruch, as I mentioned, was written following the destruction of the Second Temple. Second Baruch was probably written in Hebrew. We don't know for sure. The only complete copy that we have is a copy in Syriac. Syriac is essentially a dialect of Aramaic. 
just like fourth Ezra was not written by Ezra, second Baruch was not written by Baruch. This is why we call these books pseudepigrapha. Pseudepigrapha means books that have a false inscription. In other words, attributed to an author who did not actually write them. Pseudo-false, epigraphane, is to write on something in Greek and therefore an inscription. Books with a false inscription. So 4th Ezra and 2nd Baruch are both pseudepigrapha. Just as an aside, what we call pseudepigrapha are not always technically pseudepigrapha. The way we group books written during the Second Temple period are we have the Apocrypha, those are the books that made it into the Septuagint, which was the Greek uh, Bible used by the Jews of Alexandria and later taken by the church. We have the Pseudepigrapha, which are books that were sometimes written by Jews and sometimes written by Christians, and that's why there are Jewish Pseudepigrapha and Christian Pseudepigrapha, but in general, they were kept by some church somewhere. So for example, First Enoch, was kept by the Ethiopian church in its translation into Gez, into Ethiopic. Fourth Ezra was kept by the Catholic church. It was kept by the church, but only in the Vulgate. It was not in the Septuagint. Therefore, it falls into the Pseudepigrapha and not the Apocrypha. So let's take a look at Second Baruch. Second Baruch is very interesting because Second Baruch argues with this idea that Adam is somehow the source of sin. So on the one hand, it argues with it, on the other hand, it brings it up. It says in chapter 48, verse 42, And I answered and said, O Adam, what have you done to all those who are born from you? And what will be said to the first Eve who heeded the serpent? For all this multitude are going to corruption, nor is there any numbering those whom the fire devours. Fire, of course, being the, the desire to sin. So here we see that there is this idea that sin comes from Adam, but it's more likely to be used kind of in a lamentation. It's uh, it's a bit of a, a genre thing. It's like, if we're going to lament, let's lament Adam bringing sin into the world. Oh, Adam, what are you doing? If you recall, just like we have in fourth Ezra, oh, Adam, what have you done? So here we have, oh, Adam, what have you done to all those who are born from you? So this is apparently... It was apparently typical of a lament to lament Adam uh, bringing sin to his, to his descendants because we see it both in 4th Ezra and in 2nd Baruch. Or perhaps one was influenced by the other. But then we have in chapter 54 the argument of 2nd Baruch against this idea. For though Adam sinned first and brought untimely death upon all, also those who were born from him have prepared for himself the coming torment. In other words, the person who has been born from Adam, has prepared the coming torment for himself. And also, each one of them has chosen for himself glories to come. In other words, if he, if he does good, he'll get the glories to come. For truly, he who believes will receive reward. But now, as for you, you wicked that now are, turn to destruction, because you will be visited quickly, since you previously rejected the understanding of the Most High. So Adam, and here I'm skipping to verse 19, listen closely. So Adam is not the cause except for his own soul, but each of us has been the Adam of his own soul. I love this. He's saying, don't blame your sins on Adam. You are the Adam of yourself. Adam sinned and brought whatever he brought on himself. You caused yourself to sin. Don't blame it on Adam. You are your own Adam. Great way to phrase it. 
And what's interesting is when we see an argument against something, that means there's something to argue with. The author of Second Baruch here is arguing with an idea, an idea that is pro apparently prominent enough to argue. People say, oh, you know, it's not my fault I sinned. It's because of Adam. It's his fault. And Second Baruch is saying, no. It is not Adam's fault. He may have brought death into the world. Remember we talked about those two different ideas we've seen in 4th Ezra. Adam brought death into the world or Adam brought sin into the world. By the way, I know that any Christian listeners I have there are thinking, Romans 5, Romans 5. Okay, so Romans 5, according to Romans 5, you can read it as Adam brought death into the world, not sin. It says that Adam brought death into the world. And in fact, in Romans 7, the reason to sin is simply that you are flesh, right? Um, now, by the way, you say, what does that have to do with the Second Temple? Well, of course, Paul is a Jew living during the Second Temple period. So what he says also reflects general ideas that exist. In Romans 5, Paul reflects the idea that Adam brought death into the world. Is that physical death or is that spiritual death? That is a matter of later interpretation. But coming back to our Second Temple works, what have we seen here? We have seen... In Ben Sira, a reflection of this idea that sin is from a woman, which clearly reflects a reading of the Adam and Eve story and perhaps even the Cain and Abel story. Then we saw in 4th Ezra two different ideas. The idea that Adam is the source, Adam's sin is the source of death and that Adam's sin is the source of sin in his descendants. And in 2nd Baruch, we saw the idea that Adam's sin is the source of sin, but also arguing with the, that idea. In other words, in a lament, you could say, oh, Adam, what have you done? But when the author of Second Baruch is actually saying, hey, look, what are you responsible for? He says, you are the Adam of your own soul. You are responsible for your sin. Your sin is not coming from Adam. Your sin is coming from yourself. What's interesting for us here is not just the different, the mixing of ideas and the arguing with this idea. It's that this idea is apparently only prominent after the temple falls, or we only see it really prominently. This isn't, this isn't a really popular idea. So we could have a book somewhere that did not survive that talked about this, but all, in all the books we have that survive, including the Dead Sea Scrolls, this is not a popular idea. It's not popular that Adam brought death into the world. It's certainly not popular that Adam brought sin into the world, even though someone's reading it that way because Ben Sirin in 200 BCE is aware of this as an explanation. So why is it so prominent in these two books that we have from right after the Temple Falls. One possible explanation is that both 4th Ezra and 2nd Baruch are trying to make sense of this tremendous tragedy that has befallen the Jewish people. The question is, why in the world did we deserve this? Why did this happen to us? This is horrible. Did, did we sin that much? Did we do, were we that bad? Was it really our fault? And an answer that seems to be appealing at this time is, this is something that is so cosmic. This is a punishment for a cosmic sin. And that cosmic sin has to be almost prehistorical. It has to be something bigger than just us and just the sin I did yesterday. This is a cosmic sin that is in all humans from the time of Adam, from Adam's first huge sin. That is a possible explanation for why this idea gained so much traction after the fall 
of the second temple. So that is some food for thought. But I would not be doing my job, such as it is, if I didn't talk a little bit about the echoes of the Cain and Abel story. If you remember when I told you last time that, strangely enough, we do not hear many echoes of the oracle to Cain that we read in the Cain and Abel story. An oracle that seems to be talking specifically about what sin is. Sin couches at the door. It desires you and you can control it. We don't really see any sort of echo of this idea, except in several places in the Qumran scrolls, mainly in the War Scroll and in one other place. If you would like to follow along in your source sheet, you have the sources in front of you. However, I will also read them. The first source that I'm going to bring is a very fragmentary source, and it is not from the War Scroll, it's from the Community Rule. This was one of the main uh, rule books of the Qumran community. And uh, just to tell you a little, if you are looking at a source sheet and you see one QS, the one is the cave number, Q is for Qumran, in this, in this case S is for Serach, which means rule book. And then you have the column and the line. In the war scroll, it's 1Q Milchama, which means war, 1Q Cave 1. Uh, you'll see a 33 after that. That's simply the number of the scroll and then the column and the line. Remember, these are lines and not verses. We don't have verses in the scroll. We number it according to line. Many of them are very fragmentary. So we have a line in the community rule. And it's talking about what a person is. Vayelod Isha, someone who is born of woman. It's talking about how low he is. It says, V'hu mitziruk chemar koretz ulafart shukato. He is from spit and pinched off clay, and to dirt is his desire. This seems to be talking about sinful, a sinful human being. Now what's interesting already, you can already hear it, is remember that sin desired people, and here the person desires dirt. Now again, ulafart shukato that's a very unusual form, even though to dirt is his desire sounds much more normal. Lafar Teshukato is a clear echo of that verse spoken to Cain saying, Teshukato, that to you is sin's desire. Moving right along, let's talk about let's talk about the war scroll. So I'm not actually going to go into detail about what the war scroll is. It's an apocalypse. It talks about uh, the war between the sons of light and the sons of dark, or the children of light and the children of dark. I'm not going to go into too much detail, but there are two clear camps. There are the wicked who are with demons, and there are the righteous who are with angels, led by the angel Michael, who fights against the wicked, led by Bliao. And of course, we will talk about Blial later in this series. I'm not going to speak about him now, however. So here we have uh, fragments missing, but bear with me. You appointed, and I'm reading now from 13, uh, ten, lines 10 to 13 in the War Scroll. You appointed the Prince of Light from of old to assist us, and all spirits of truth are in his dominion. You yourself made Blial for the pit, an angel of malevolence, in darkness, and his counsel is to condemn and convict. All the spirits of his lot, the angels of destruction, walk in accord with the rules of darkness, for to it is their desire. Yitalchu, ve'elav teshukatamma. 
Again, it's Chukatama and not Chukatam because apparently that's how they pronounced it. That's why they add a hey at the end of the word Chukatam. So they will walk in the laws of darkness and to it is their desire. Now, this is actually very interesting because it's, it should be to them is their desire. They're going to walk in the laws of darkness and to it is their desire. But there's a clear desire here to echo the two biblical verses, the curse of Eve, ve'elav teshukatech, right? To him is your will be your desire. And the verse spoken to Cain, ve'elecha teshukato, that sin's desire will be to you. Now, once again, note that here we have demons who desire what? They don't desire man, they desire the laws of darkness. Let's continue to column 15, lines 9 to 10. We have, for they are a wicked congregation. All their deeds are in darkness. To it is their desire. Ve'elav teshukatama. Again, we have a singular when we would expect a plural, unless it's talking about something too evil is their desire. Again, to more clearly really reflect the curse of Eve and the oracle spoken to Cain. Once again, it is the wicked congregation that desires evil. And finally, in column 17, line four, but as for you, take courage and do not fear them. Their end is emptiness and to the void is their desire. And here we have, Vatem hitchazku v'al til'um hema litohu ulevohu teshukatama. So here we have a reflection of the the uh, chaos and emptiness that was in the beginning of the world, tohu vavohu, right? And it says they are for tohu, and their desire is to bohu, right? In other words, again, the wicked's desire is for this chaos. So you might say, well, okay, great, that's nice that we have similar forms, why have we switched the order? You told us about how in the biblical context, the desired has power and sin desires the person. And here we have demons or people desiring sin. And the answer is that Hebrew has, of course, evolved. And not just Hebrew, but the concepts and the way people think has changed. People are not thinking in the Second Temple period the way they, they thought when the biblical books were first read and heard. In this case, people are thinking in a way much closer to the way we think, which is that the wicked desire wickedness. And so while reflecting these verses, the writers here are changing the order into an order that makes more sense, the wicked desire wickedness. And again, this is giving us a bit of a hint of why we don't see the story of Cain and Havel reflected elsewhere in Second Temple literature as an explanation of sin. Because what do all these uh, creatures or people have in common where we're using that language? They have in common that they are wicked. The oracle to Cain explains wickedness of the wicked. If you are righteous and you, or you consider yourself righteous and you have a desire to sin, you want to explain that desire to sin. Well, clearly, a verse that is spoken to Cain does not help you at all because that explains wicked for a wicked person. But I am not a wicked person. My friends are not wicked people. 
This does not explain anything except the wickedness of the wicked. And therefore, this verse did not become a real proof text during the Second Temple period, at least for communities like the Qumran community. What is interesting, of course, is that the verse said to Cain about sin does become a major proof text in rabbinic literature because Cain is considered a penitent, right? Cain repented of his sin, and this verse is supposed to encapsulate for rabbinic readers the idea of being able to both repent and being able to control one's evil inclination. We will explore the evil inclination, of course, later in this series. So in our next episode, we are going to explore the story of Bnei Elohim Uvnot Adam, or as some people call them, the Watchers, in Genesis 6, in Bereshit Vav. We will discuss the story in its biblical context. And in our following episode, we're going to see how this story became one of the major explanations of where sin comes from during the Second Temple period. In books like First Enoch, in Jubilees, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and how we can see hints of it in the rabbinic and medieval periods as well. So looking forward to speaking to you next week. And be sure to check in on my blog page at understandingsin.com and leave me any comments or questions you might have. I love comments and questions, so please feel free to leave me some. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to speaking with you next time. You have been listening to Understanding Sin and Evil with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com.